we heard today in that first reading about the, the one from the first book of Kings, how David has died and Solomon, his son, remember, it's his third son. He lost his first son with Bathsheba as an infant, and his son Absalom turned against him and uh, was killed by David's uh, troops. And now his third son Solomon has taken over and has become king. And his first act is to go around and make burnt offerings to to God, to Yahweh, uh, and he goes to different places. And we can hear this suggestion that that the, the most important point of worship and sacrifice has not really yet been established in the, king, in the kingdom. Remember, it's Solomon later who has the temple built in Jerusalem. Uh, but first he, then he has a dream in which Yahweh comes to him and asks him what he would like. Um, this is the dream we all dream of having, isn't it? <laughs> he, he says, well, I, I'm trying to do my best. My father was a great king, and I'm only a little child. And uh, I, so I'm asking for wisdom so that I'll be able to guide the, guide the people. And, and Yahweh says, that's a good answer, and I will give you wisdom and you'll be wiser than anybody else who ever lived. And we still say the wisdom of Solomon, don't we? And he was given wisdom. And then because he'd asked for such a modest thing or such a sensible thing or such a wise thing, maybe, um, he's also given riches and fame and long life and all those other things. So be careful what you dream and be careful what you answer in your dreams. But wisdom is what. Uh, side note, it's interesting t- uh, because I, I may want to pick this up later, about our translations and our understanding of language, because when it says in the text that Solomon says, I'm only a little child, we don't know what that word was in Hebrew exactly, but scholars think he was about 20 when he became king. So he probably didn't say our equivalent of little ch- child. He probably says, I'm a young man, or I'm just young, or I'm just a kid, or oh, whatever one says to Yahweh. So he's given everything. And then when we hear in the psalm, the line comes in, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, putting wisdom ahead as the, as the thing we ought to seek. And then in the letter to the Ephesian, Paul says, um, be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's the mark of wisdom for Solomon and for the psalmist and also for Paul to his church in Ephesus. And those readings and and the biblical passages this morning are fairly straightforward. But, But when we come to the Gospel of John, we hear again for the third Sunday in a row the statement, I am the bread of life. Eat this bread and live. This is my body. This is my flesh. This is my blood eat this and you will live. And these are difficult passages because they, they make us a little uncomfortable. And um, so what does it mean to say, if we read it literally, I am the bread of life, the bread is my flesh. Some early missionaries in some places where uh, there were fairly unsophisticated non-Christians accused the missionaries actually of being cannibals when they 
recited these lines from John because they heard it literally. It was translated literally into their language, and it's been a difficult passage. So I, I'm going to talk a little bit about translation, although I know this isn't news to most of you, but if you know another language or if you've studied another language, you know that translation is not just a matter of substituting a word in one language for the equivalent in another. And the more you learn, the more you find out that there may not be an equivalent. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, all the typical jokes about translation. How do you say, and, and uh, the, think of all the newspaper columnists who've made a living reporting how things are transmitted into English from other languages. But they don't ever say that it's probably just as bad when we translate the other direction. Um, so in John's gospel, perhaps more than elsewhere, his language compared with our language is, uh, is problematic. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of questions arise. And the varieties of interpretations and beliefs have been the result to the point that Centuries-long debates have raged because of differing ideas of what John's words mean. John's gospel was written not by John the disciple, but by his followers. And uh, it's written at least 60 years after Jesus' death. And it was written for a group of followers who were especially interested in the mystery of Jesus and his supernatural nature. It's heavy with figures of speech. And they were also convinced that there was no other way toward a relationship with God than through the total acceptance of Jesus as the Christ. They were very hostile toward Jews who had not accepted that, and there, was a lot of, there were a lot of statements in John's gospel against the Jews. And part of the hostility of many Christians through the Middle Ages and beyond toward Jews have come from John's gospel. And yet when we go back and look at the situation in which it was written, it answers some of those questions. Um, they, they placed many of the concepts against the Jews and about the absolute nature of salvation only through Jesus in their reports of what Jesus himself said. So that in John, Jesus makes statements that he makes nowhere else in the Gospels. We have I have, myself, uh, gotten into conversations with people who challenged me and argued with me and uh, almost called me a heretic, I suppose, except they were too polite, because I suggested that we don't know everything about God's plan, that I suggested that I couldn't believe that somebody who lived before Jesus' historical life was, was damned forever and could never be saved. I, I couldn't believe that they didn't, they didn't see that there might be other paths to salvation. Maybe they're all going up the same mountain, but people are on different paths to get there. Um, so when we read the passage about the bread of life, we probably should remember the absolute teaching of John's colony. Jesus is the only source of life and the only truth. <coughs> remember John's gospel was written in Greek. But we doubt that Jesus spoke to his followers in Greek. So already we have a layer of translation, probably. It's likely, scholars think, that Jesus knew Greek, maybe could even speak it. Um, and of course, we know he spoke Hebrew because he read from the Hebrew scroll in his hometown synagogue. But he mostly traveled and preached in small towns and villages. 
this is possibly to escape the notice of the authorities as long as possible. He didn't go into the cities much preaching. So he would be speaking to the ordinary people in their ordinary language, which at that time was Aramaic, which is a relative, a Semitic language, a relative of Hebrew. It's a language totally, I mean, in a different language family from Greek or Latin or English or any of the Western European. It's not an Indo-European language, it's a Semitic language. So right there we have some difference, difficulties of translation. I mean, you can see it probably isn't too hard to translate from Italian to Spanish. But if you've ever even tried to read the Beowulf, you know that, that <laughs> languages change. If, any, if a language is alive, it changes. And so we're a long way from John's Gospel. So in Aramaic, uh, <coughs> I've read that it has a relatively small vocabulary. Now, relatively is relative. Um, what does this mean? English happens to have the largest vocabulary in the world, so we're probably not in a good position to estimate how small a vocabulary is. And when I studied, uh, well, I took a course in, should I say, I said, uh, in comparative linguistics, it's clear that every language in the world is absolutely and totally adequate for communication for the people who speak it. Otherwise, it would change. <laughs> So when we say Aramaic had a small vocabulary, what, what does that mean for us trying to read about something said in Aramaic to people who spoke Aramaic and then put into Greek and then brought to us down a series of translations? Aramaic and languages like it rely heavily on direct communication. Now it's likely that most of the people that Jesus spoke to were illiterate. They depended upon oral language. The meaning is expressed in a number of ways. Things like metaphor and innuendo and sarcasm and irony are fairly easy to communicate when you're talking to somebody. But when you write that down, it's very hard to, to communicate those subtleties of language. And so we're, we're missing a whole layer of gesture and exaggeration and so on. And of course, Jesus was always speaking. He didn't write things down. He was speaking to people. So much of what they heard in Aramaic by na was the native speakers was then reiterated later by speakers of Greek and Latin, by persons whose first language we don't know. And then through the centuries, the Bible was put into Latin. And, and Jerome's Bible in Latin became the source of most Western European translations. The first languages, uh, the first translations in, in English were in the 15th century. Um, and a couple of those translators were put to death because they felt that they were uh, violating the absolute <coughs> words of Jesus, which of course weren't in the Latin that they were defending. <laughs> so we don't know. And we probably never can know exactly what was Jesus was trying to communicate in Aramaic to his listeners. Um, so words in a, a language like Aramaic have to do double and triple duty, and we, we have instances of that. Have you ever heard the expression, the Greeks had a word for it? And uh, <laughs> Because 
classical Greek has a large vocabulary. And many, many phrases and words and meanings were adopted into English in the 17th century especially from Greek. So whenever they didn't have a word in English, they just made one up out of, out of Greek. And um, some of the words we would cherish as English words aren't basically from the beginning. So we, we have a lot of words. When we, when we want to say something or write down or utter that we're saying or someone said, we can say, speak, talk, voice, yell, utter, murmur, remark, ask, tell, all those words. And some languages might have just one word for the idea of talking. In Greek, for example, as some of you know, there are at least four words, four different words, that we translate as love in English. So you can say, I love God, I love you, I love pizza, I love Yosemite, I love being a waiter. You know, I mean, we could say all those things we love. And sometimes that's handy to be ambiguous about that word, but, but remember <laughs> that, that Greek could say agape or eros or philia or, uh, let's see, there's one that means, uh, that's thelema, which is a wish to do something. And there are several others that I came across that are sometimes translated love or like or are fond of or admire or something like that in English. And early English used the word bread, not just in writing but speaking, to mean food in general. It was the basic food for most of the peasants and ordinary people of the world. Give us this day our daily bread doesn't necessarily mean it can only be bread. It means give us something to eat today. I mean, that's, that's the basic stuff. Sustain us, support us, keep us alive, give us bread. And um, when people in Jesus' audience needed to be ex told that Jesus was their sustenance, was their support, was their food for their soul, uh, bread is the logical choice. It wasn't vegetables. It wasn't fruits. It wasn't meat. Those were for rich people. The ordinary people didn't eat meat probably more than several times a year. It was, it was scarce and it was expensive. But bread, there's probably no culture, I don't know of any, but I'll say few cultures don't have some kind of bread. Almost every sort of culture we know about has some kind of bread. It's the basic stuff. When um, it occurs to me that, that when Americans and Mexicans began to raise corn for fuel, the price of corn went up in Mexico and there were whole villages almost starving because they had no corn. It was too expensive to buy corn to make tortillas. You know. so, so bread is, is, the, is the stuff of life, literally. So when Jesus wants to say, I am your sustenance, I am your food, he says, I'm bread, eat me. Eat this bread. Um, he was exaggerating because he wanted to impress them. This is my blood, drink it. This is my flesh, eat it. Now, there are some people who want to take that literally. Um, in early uh, time of the Reformation, there were those who uh, submitted the consecrated bread and wine to... to um, 
qualitative analysis to see if it actually turned into flesh and blood. The results were never announced. <laughs> Remember, Jesus also said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, we can't imagine Jesus, the healer, the bearer of the good news and love, wanting you to actually take your eye out. What did he mean? He meant, get rid of your, wise, your bad habits. Be wise. Um, use your mind. It's part of the way we worship God with our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. So on the metaphoric level, it should make us think. What does it mean? This is my, the bread is my body given for you, the wine is my blood. That's powerful imagery. It's the imagery of the Eucharist. The words Jesus spoke to his disciples as they sat at the Last Supper. But in John's Gospel, at that last Passover meal, there is not a report of the, of the institution of the Eucharist. There was only, that, that scene only shows the washing of the disciples' feet. So I think probably this passage about the bread of life and about eat my flesh and drink my blood is John's version of the Eucharistic institution. Jesus says in the other Gospels, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to keep my memory alive. I'll give you life, and in eating the bread and wine, the body and the blood, you keep me alive in your hearts and in your community. Many of the literalists who insist that belief in Jesus is the only way to salvation are repulsed by the notion that the bread and the wine become actual flesh and blood in the Eucharist. Yet others fervently believe so. It was one of the main issues of the Reformation. In John's Gospel, that question is implied. How can we live? What is the bread of life? And Jesus doesn't say here that we're eating and drinking in memory of me. In John, he says, what is the bread of life? I am. This is the food you need. My words, my teaching, my life, my flesh and blood. Eat this and live. Amen. <laughs>